Well, this is it. The last chapter in the book of Exodus. You have run the race. You have gone through all the study, and you are closing out the semester. And many of you may be approaching this week, like many of my students approach the final week of their semester, and you may be starting to think about what you're going to do over the summer. You may be making plans about what activities you want to cross off your list. Maybe you even have some trips or some, some vacations that your family is going to go on. But my guess is, if you are taking some vacations, that your vacation planning probably looks a little bit different than the vacation planning looked like in my house growing up. See, in my house, my dad was the vacation planner. He was the one who arranged all the details. And he did what you traditionally do. He made sure we had the flights booked. He made sure that we had our hotels taken care of. If we needed a rental car, he had all of that taken care of. And he got all of that tied down. But he also, a week or two before we were to depart on wherever we were going, he would send out a typed agenda of what we were going to do every day of our vacation. He made sure that he had a plan for how we were going to rest and relax. And not only did he go day by day through our time away, he went hour by hour of how we were going to spend our time. Now, some of you are thinking, wow, that sounds super overbearing. I don't want to do that on my vacation. But see, what you need to know is that my dad had a purpose in doing that. My dad was a man who lived his life very intentionally. And he knew that what mattered is not only that we got to where we were going, but that we made the most of the opportunity once we got there. And as we've been studying the book of Exodus, God has been bringing the Israelites on a journey. And what really matters is not only that he has safely brought them through this desert, but that he has been preparing them for what he has in store for them next. Because God also wants the Israelites to make the most out of where he's bringing them. And we know that God has a purpose and a plan for the Israelites as a nation. This was a purpose and a plan that he articulated as early as Genesis 12, when he made his covenant with Abraham. He told Abraham, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. And it says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He renewed this commitment in Exodus 19, where he says to the Israelites, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. And then in Exodus 34, he even makes it more pointed where he says, and all the people among you, when you go into this promised land and you're surrounded by these nations that are hostile to me and to my word, all the, na all the people among you shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. God had a plan for the Israelites. The journey was not the destination. The journey was his goodness and mercy being poured out on them to bring them to the point where they could be a light to the nations. And as we close out Exodus, God is one more time preparing them to make the most out of where he will bring them. So if you haven't already, turn to the very last chapter of Exodus as we close out the study together. Exodus 40 starts off like this. God is finishing giving Moses the instructions for building the tabernacle. 
And he says to Moses, Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around, and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. God is giving to Moses his final instructions, the final blueprints for how they are to build this special tent of meeting that he has established for the nation of Israel. But it's not that they just need to finish building it. After they finish building it, God has further instructions for them. It says in verse 9, Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it, and consecrate it and all its furnitures, so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stands and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments, and shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. Then you shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed they fought their father, that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them into a perpetual priesthood throughout all the generations. God is giving to Moses the final constructions plans. And then he's telling Moses how he is to go about consecrating, making holy this tent of meeting that he has constructed. And then the next verses tell us how Moses and the Israelites responded. Verse 16 says, This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him. So he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its faces, he set up its frames, he put in its poles and raised up its, pillow, its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering on the tent as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he took the testimony and put it in the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he arranged on it the bread before the Lord, the bread, those 12 loaves that were evidence of God's provision. Just as he had provided manna to them in the wilderness, God would continue to provide for the nation of Israel, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 24, he put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and he burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he set up the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tent, tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and he offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and he put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet, when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed. 
as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Eight times it's recorded for us that Moses did just as God had commanded him. And just as Moses was committed to obeying God's directions, we need to, point one, commit to doing things God's way. We need to commit to doing things God's way. As I was studying this passage, I thought, why did you say it eight times? Couldn't you have just said it once? Save some papyrus? Save some ink? Make sure that it's, I'm seriously, like you could have just said, God said this, Moses did it. But instead, step by step, for each part of the process, God had it recorded that Moses explicitly obeyed his instructions. Why would God do that? Perhaps part of the reason is that God wanted to make it clear to the Israelites and to us that obedience requires intentionality and dedication. Obedience doesn't happen just by happenstance. It requires dedication and purpose. See, it took about six months for the Israelites to construct the tabernacle. We read about it in a minute and a half, but that was six months of work where they had to month after month, week after week, day after day, hour after hour, minute after minute, commit to doing things just as God had commanded Moses. It required a firm dedication to doing things God's way. And that was important because everything in God's plan had intentionality and purpose. As we were reminded last week, the purpose of that tabernacle was ultimately to point the Israelites to the coming Messiah. See, construction on that tabernacle started about a year after the Israelites had left Egypt. And they had a whole year to look back and see how God was faithful to provide for them. They had a whole year to look back and see how God had forgiven them. They had a whole year to look back and remember, recall how God had been powerful and mighty and had done things that they could not anticipate. And as they get ready to construct this tabernacle, this place of meeting where God would dwell with them, they were reminded of all that God had done that previous year. Even the order in which they constructed that tabernacle had purpose. They started from the innermost parts of the tabernacle, and they went outward. They started with what was in the center, and they built going outwards into the most outward aspects of that building. There was purpose in the design, in the building materials, and in the construction itself. The details mattered to God, and so the details needed to matter to Moses and the Israelites. And when we commit to doing things God's way, the details need to matter to us too. And sisters, I am afraid that sometimes it's really easy to say in our heads, to mentally say, well, of course I'm committed to doing things God's way. Of course I want to obey God in all that I am. Until we're faced with the circumstance where obedience is really difficult until we want to give just enough, but not anymore. Where we want to say, okay, I won't curse my enemy, but I'm not going to pray for them. When we say, okay, I'm willing to spend for the sake of the kingdom, but I'm not willing to be spent. I need my time of rest and relaxation. Where we're willing to give just enough, but no more, in order to do things God's way. 
As Kelly told us last week, I loved how she said it. She said, there needs to be nothing in our lives that we do not put under the feet of Jesus. As I tell my kids and you may tell your kids, partial obedience is disobedience. If you're obeying your God in some things but not all things, you're not really obeying our God. We need to commit fully, wholeheartedly, holding nothing back to doing things God's way. We need to, as I also tell my kids, do things right away, all the way. When we feel the spirit of his conviction, we need to say, okay, God, I'm going to turn and I'm going to do things according to your plan. Even if it's hard, even if it costs me, even if I have to suffer as a result, I trust you and so I'm going to do things according to your word. And some of you may be thinking, well, it was probably pretty easy, easy for Moses and the Israelites. God had given them a blueprint. He had told them the construction plans. So it was probably really easy for them to obey him. But ladies, God has given us a blueprint for our lives as well. In his graciousness and his mercy, he gave us 66 books that he codified and preserved for us to tell us how he desires for us to live our lives. God has given us his instructions. We need to make sure that we are wholeheartedly committed to following them. And I know that some of you are thinking, Natalie, that sounds really good, but that's really hard. And it is. It requires, just as it did for the Israelites, a minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month after month commitment. And thank God that we serve a gracious and merciful king who when we fail to do things God's way, convicts our hearts and allows us to turn and repent, to renew that commitment that the next time, the next minute, I will do things according to God's plans. As we think about the fact that it took the Israelites six months to construct this temple, this tabernacle, I wonder if we were to think over the last six months of our life, and if someone were to follow us, would they be able to say, she did things just as God commanded her. She was faithful to obey God when it was hard, when she was tired, when she didn't want to give any more. Day by day, Minute by minute, hour after hour, she did things just as God commanded her. And if we can't say that, may today we make that commitment that we are going to do things according to God's way, that we are going to strive hard to make sure that in everything, in the good times and in the difficult ones, in the, when it's easy and when it's hard, that we are going to do things according to God's plan that we are going to obey what he has said, his instructions for our lives, just as Moses and the Israelites were faithful to do, to construct that tabernacle, just as the Lord had commanded them. You see, it's important that we do things God's way, just like it was important for the Israelites to do things God's way, because there was, it was a necessary condition. Constructing the, temple, the tabernacle according to God's plan was a necessary condition for God to bring about his good purposes. Look with me in verse 34, where we see what happens next. As a reminder, verse 33 ended with, 
Moses finished the work. It's all done. He's done exactly what God said. And now he waits to see what God will do. And he didn't have to wait long because it says then, after Moses had finished the work, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God had designed, God had intentioned that tent of meeting to display his glory. And similarly, we need to point to be a showcase for who God is. We need to be a showcase for who God is. The Israelites were God's chosen people to be an example to the nations. The reason he chose them, the reason he called them out amongst all the other nations was that through them, his glory, his majesty, his power, his love, his faithfulness, his mercy were to be on display. People were to look to them and see who God was. And similarly, our obedience to God should be a demonstration of his character. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds. That when you do what God has called you to do, they will see that and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, as you think about what a showcase is, you might think, I don't, I don't know if I've been, I don't know if I can experience, if I can have an understanding of what it means to be a showcase. But I bet for most people in this room, you have been to a showcase. Because I had the opportunity last week to go to two of them. It was my kids' open house at their school. Think about it. You go into their classroom, and for us who have been going through COVID these last two years, for a lot of us, it was the first time that we got to go into their classrooms. You go into their classrooms, and what do the teachers do? They put your students' work on display. They show you this is what they've learned in math. This is how good their printing is. This is what they've learned in science. They try to give you a representation of who your kid is in the classroom. And they demonstrate through all of the work that they put on display just what kind of student your child is. Similarly, our lives should be a representation of the character of God. When people look at our lives, we should be displaying to them who our God is. Our lives should represent the totality of God's character. Our lives should represent his holiness. We serve a God who is perfectly holy, in whom, whom there is no shadow of turning, who is perfectly pure, and our lives should reflect that as well. We serve a God who loves us so much that while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. Are we willing to lay down the rights to our lives for our enemies? Are we willing to love them so much that it cost us in order to show them the kind of love that God has for us? Our lives need to represent his mercy and his justice, his grace and his patience. Our lives need to represent his peace. Ladies, we serve the Prince of Peace. So there should now be no reason for us to be anxious about anything we can cast all our anxieties on him. And as we do so, we show the world that's watching us that we can be at peace even when the circumstances around us are chaotic because our God is a God of peace. When someone sees our actions, when they hear our words, 
when they experience our attitudes, are they seeing a representation of God? Paul was able to confidently answer that question, yes. He said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he said to the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul was able to say, if you want to know what you should do, if you want to know who God is, look at my life. Because my life is patterned after my Savior. Ladies, what an amazing honor and privilege it would be able, it would be to be able to say that to someone else. To confidently say, if you want to know more about God, look at how I respond to difficult circumstances. Look at the love I pour out on other people. Look at the patience I have with my kids. And understand more fully the patience that God has with his kids. Our lives need to be a showcase for who God is, just as that tabernacle was a showcase to display God's glory. I think it's interesting that when Moses had done everything as God commanded him, and we know he did because it tells us repeatedly, and that glory of the Lord had come down and filled the tabernacle, that it tells us that Moses wasn't allowed to enter it. Can you imagine your Moses? You just said, okay, check. Put the poles in, put the ark in, did everything just as I was supposed to. My obedience should earn me the right to enter. And God said, no. You're not able to enter the tabernacle because the atonement for your sins have not yet been paid. The sacrifice that was necessary to allow Moses to enter God's presence hadn't yet been made. And so he wasn't allowed to enter it. When we think about putting God's character on display in our lives, let us make sure that we not only showcase who he is, but we also display the desperate need we have for a savior. That people would look at our lives and they would see people who have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And they would remember, they would be reminded that they need that redemption as well. God's glory didn't just fill the tabernacle after construction was completed. Our passage also tells us that a cloud came down. A cloud came down as the glory was filling the tabernacle, and it became Israelites' guide. Look with me in verse 36. It says this about the cloud. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it, is take, that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Just as God provided the cloud to guide the Israelites in their journey into the promised land, so we need to, point three, trust that God will always lead his kids. Trust that God will always lead his kids. This is the first time in our study of Exodus that we've seen the cloud. We saw it in Exodus 19 and 24 when the cloud was on Mount Sinai. We saw it again in Exodus 33 and 34 when the cloud was on the tent that Moses had put outside the camp. But this is the first time where it's recorded that the cloud was in their midst. God was with them. God's presence was among them. And as they prepared to enter the promised land, they had the confidence and security of knowing that God was going with them. 
This is a promise that Jesus renewed before he departed, before he ascended into heaven. Matthew 28, 20 says that Jesus promised his, follower, promised his followers to be with them always, throughout all their journeys, wherever they went, to the end of the age. This promise was repeated in Hebrews 13, 5, where it says that God says, no, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But as Dr. Lutzer reminded us this weekend, that passage, Hebrews 13, 5, it's stronger in the Greek than when we read it in English. There are five negatives in the Greek. I went back and checked. He was right. Five negatives in the Greek. If you were to really read that passage in the Greek language, it would sound something like this. No, I will never leave you. No, I will never, never forsake you. Do you think God wants his kids to have confidence that he will always be with them? That there is no distance too far? That there is no path so obscure? That your father is not walking alongside you as you obey him, that he will prepare that path for you and that he will be with you wherever you go. If you are the child of the king, if you are a daughter of our father in heaven, then you can have the confidence that wherever you go, your God is walking in your midst. Your God's presence is with you. God continues to be with his kids, and he continues to lead them on the path that he has prepared. It was interesting to me to think about the fact that God made the evidence of his presence a cloud. He could have picked anything, but he made the evidence of his presence a cloud, both now and previously in Exodus. And if you think about it, the Israelites were wandering in a desert. They were hot. It was dry. They were probably weary. And if you're walking in the desert for 40 years, you know what you probably really want? is some shade. You probably really want a cloud to provide some covering. And God's symbol of his presence was a reminder to the Israelites that he would provide for them, that he would be their covering, that in him they could find rest and rescue. It's also worth noting that the cloud didn't always move. Did you catch that? It says that sometimes the cloud would stay and sometimes it would move. And when the cloud would stay, so would the Israelites. It's helpful for us to remember that sometimes God's leading is for us to stay. There may be some among us who are always looking to the next circumstance we want to figure out what the next adventure is or the next ministry opportunity or the next place that God is going to call us to. And if that's you, sometimes you need to make sure, always you need to make sure that when God leads you to stay, that you're willing to stay. Sometimes God keeps us in the hard circumstances because God is orchestrating all things for his good purposes. And he needs you to stay right where you are until the moment that he calls you to go. There's other among us who may be like, I love staying. I'm super content where I am. Life is good. My kids are great. This job is wonderful. I love my small group. This is awesome. I hope God never calls me to move. You have to be willing. If that is you, you have to be willing to say, when God moves me, 
I'm going to follow. I might not know what he's doing. I might not know where we're going. But if God calls me to move, then I'm going to follow his leading. Just as the Israelites, every time that cloud moved, picked up their tent, packed their bags, and started making their entrance into the promised land. And whether we're going or we're staying, as we wait for God to lead us, sisters, let's make sure that we wait well, that we wait in complete dependence on our good God, knowing that he is with us. He will never, never, never forsake us. And so even when it seems like he may be silent, we can be confident that God is with us, that his care and provision are surrounding us, and that at the moment we need to go, that he has prepared the path that we are to walk. The book of Exodus is about the Israelites' journey into the promised land. But the purpose of the journey was to put God on display. We saw his power and his might by miraculously releasing the Israelites from slavery. We saw his provision through the manna and the quail in the wilderness. We saw his mercy and his compassion when his people abandoned his way and started worshiping a golden calf. And yet he provided a way for that relationship to be renewed. We saw his grace, his goodness, and his might. The purpose of his journey, the purpose of this journey, was to glorify God. And ladies, each of us are on a journey as well. If we are the child of our king, then we are walking a journey waiting to get to our promised land. The home where there are no tears, there is no suffering, there is no pain. The place where we get to dwell in eternity with our God and Savior. And the purpose of our journey, the purpose of the road that God has called you to walk, is to glorify him. So as we anticipate that day where we will enter our promised land, that day where he will call us home to be with him, may we commit to live every day in accordance to his will. May we commit to do everything according to his ways. May we trust that he will lead us. And may we faithfully follow him each and every step of the way, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month. And as we do so, may the people who surround us, the people who he's put surrounding us, where we are in their midst, may they look at our lives and may they see his goodness and his mercy, his compassion, his power, his grace, and his love until the day he calls us home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had to study the book of Exodus, to understand more about who you are as a result of the work that you did in the nation of Israel. And Father, we thank you that just like for the Israelites, 
that your grace and mercy pursue us. That as we walk the road that you have prepared for us, that we can be confident that for each and every person in this room who has repented of their sins and put their faith in you, that you go with them and that you will lead them in the path that you have prepared for them. Father, I ask that as these ladies break up into their small groups, that it would be a time of both encouragement and conviction. If there's anyone in this room, Father, who could not confidently say, yes, I'm a daughter of the King. Father, I ask that they would not leave this place until they have done business with you, until you have redeemed them and they have accepted the atonement of your son on that cross. And Father, for the rest of us, for those of us who are your daughters, I ask, Father, that you would help us to faithfully walk according to your ways, that our lives would display your glory to all those who look upon our lives, and that, Father, that we may live each and every day in anticipation of our eternal home. Father, may the discussion be rich. May it be encouraging. May we leave this time of study in Exodus with a renewed commitment to glorify you in all that we do. We thank you, Father, for your goodness. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.